Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting October 15th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, Harvard epidemiologist Walter Willett talks about the connection between diet and fertility, as well as other nutrition and health relationships, such as the links between diet and cancer. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Walter Willett is the chair of the Department of Nutrition and a professor of epidemiology and nutrition at the Harvard School of Public Health. His latest book is The Fertility Diet, co-authored by Jorge Chavarro and Patrick Skerritt. Our daily podcast correspondent Cynthia Graber spoke to Willett. You're known for your research in nutrition and its impact on different health outcomes, and you've already written a book about health and nutrition, and I was wondering why write a book about fertility? Well, this wasn't a book that I went out to write. Uh, this is really based on the work of uh, Dr. Jorge Chavarro, who was a doctoral student in our department during the last several years. And uh, this was really uh, Dr. Chavarro's idea to look at how diet relates to infertility. We had been studying infertility, actually, in the Nurses' Health Study too, mainly to look at oral contraceptives and some other factors that might relate to infertility. And we had also been looking at diet and breast cancer. So Dr. Chavarro was interested in reproductive health, and he said, wait, all the data are sitting there in the computer. Why don't I look at uh, diet and infertility? And he had some ideas. Uh, we knew from uh, the more extreme case of polycystic ovarian syndrome that this form of infertility, uh, it's strongly related to infertility, uh, is uh, due to insulin resistance. And we'd also seen a lot of dietary factors being related to insulin. So he said logically, he hypothesized that maybe some of those dietary factors that are related to insulin resistance are also related to infertility, even before you get to polycystic ovarian syndrome. Hmm. And it turns out that uh, that was confirmed. And then he went on to look at many other aspects that uh, uh, by which diet influences fertility. Various scientific reports have been published over the last two years in scattered different medical journals, and it occurred to me that this isn't going to really help anybody. Uh, there, no uh, per individual person, even if they're a physician, is going to pull out all of those papers and look at the big picture. So it seemed to me it would really be worthwhile to uh, put uh, this all together in a way that would be useful to uh, anybody who's interested in being more fertile. Um, can you give me a quick overview of the method of research with the questionnaires and the and the response of the women and how many were involved? Um, in this study, we had re- enrolled about 116,000 women in the Nurses' Health Study 2, and we identified about 19,000 who were either trying to get pregnant or did become pregnant during our follow-up period. So we used the diet that they had reported uh, previously and then uh, looked at their subsequent experience regarding fertility. And then in that analysis, we were able to control for lots of other factors like smoking and other things that might influence their likelihood of becoming fertile. How many years was this? Um, were you following them? Uh, this was conducted over about a decade of follow-up. Could you just give me a quick rundown of what the major recommendations are that, that the book that you both wrote based on this research that it encompasses? Our recommendations can be boiled down to a fairly short list. First of all, we're talking about aiming for the fertility window and weight, and that means not too thin and uh, even toward the lower part of the normal range of weight. Um, also, uh, we're talking about healthy fats, and that means low trans fats and replacing them with healthy uh, liquid vegetable oils. We're talking about healthy carbohydrates, 
and that means whole grain, high fiber carbohydrates, uh, and avoiding refined starches and especially sugary beverages. And we're talking about uh, healthy sources of protein, and that means favoring vegetable sources of protein, including some chicken and fish, but keeping red meat uh, pretty low. We add in a multiple vitamin, which has been shown to improve fertility, not just in our study, but in other studies as well. And uh, we do add this little interesting twist about low-fat dairy, really staying away from low-fat dairy while you're trying to become pregnant and maybe and adding a serving of uh, whole-fat uh, dairy products per day. Uh, so we put this all together uh, with, of course, being having moderate level of physical activity, and it can have an enormous impact on your overall chances of becoming pregnant. They just seem to be what most people are recommending in terms of diet. Right. For the most part, what we found is that the general dietary recommendations that we've and others have made over the last uh, few years are related to fertility as well. Uh, in some ways, that's not too surprising. We hadn't really thought that thought of them as being related to fertility, but your reproductive system has to be healthy along with all the rest of your parts of your body for uh, good function. And clearly the function of the reproductive part of the system is to become fertile. So the one part, as you know, the one part that might seem more surprising to many people um, is the idea of having one, at least a serving of whole milk or uh, full-fat dairy. Can you explain that? Our findings regarding full-fat dairy as being related to better fertility and low-fat dairy uh, being related to less fertility uh, might seem a little surprising. And this is really the first study to look at that. Uh, look at this. So they do need to be confirmed in other studies before we're completely confident that this is real. But uh, this doesn't totally come out of the blue for us because we have seen a somewhat similar relationship for acne, which we had looked at because we knew that uh, we, what we had seen in our data was that high-fat dairy products were uh, related to higher risk of breast cancer and during the premenopausal years. And we went on to look at dairy products in relation to acne. And we had, again, the data were sitting there in the computer for, for several different studies. So we put that together. And there we found that uh, low-fat dairy particularly was uh, worse for acne. And it, what we have learned as we've gone into this is that the fat part of dairy contains estrogens and progestins. And it's very possible uh, that those are not bad for acne, for example, because in fact, we use all contraceptives to treat acne. They're high in estrogens and progestins. And it may well be that those hormones are just giving the developing eggs a little boost there and giving them a little added advantage to make it all the way to become functional and, and uh, allowing a woman to become fertile. Whereas the part of uh, the milk that is not fat contains more androgens and some other growth hormones that may not be so conducive to fertility. That's hypothesis. Uh, this clearly is a a new area that no one has looked into before, and there's a lot more work to do. Speaking of a lot more work to do, you say in the book, you know, at the very beginning, you say that there are millions upon millions of dollars that have been spent on fertility technologies. Um, and certainly many people spend lots of money out of their own pocket mm -hmm. to get pregnant. And you also say that little attention has been paid to nutrition. Why is that? Well, I'm not really sure, but uh, the literature review for this uh, book and for the papers we published was very easy because there had been almost nothing published on the relationship between nutrition and fertility. And uh, it's not totally clear at, uh, why that was, but clearly there's a huge amount of profit or money to be made in medical technologies for fertility. And uh, that may well have biased the research directions as well. I understand that when you started publishing even about cancer, that 
that world was also resi- that medical world was also resistant to nutrition at the beginning. Can you just tell me a little bit about that kind of evolution? It's interesting. Uh, the ancient physicians uh, actually knew that nutrition was very important. Maybe they didn't have so many drugs around, and uh, they had to live with nutrition. But they realized it could be important. And if you look at their writings, nutrition gets a lot of emphasis. But in my medical school training, nutrition got almost no emphasis, and. It was even more problematic than that. No one really asked the question, why is somebody getting cancer? Why is somebody getting cataracts? Uh, we didn't really think more deeply about the origins of these diseases. And it was a big wake-up when we looked at different parts of the world and found that in many places some of these diseases were very rare that are the most common causes of death in our country. So um, I think there's been uh, perhaps a superficiality in our medicine and uh, way in our research priorities until very recently. But during the last couple of decades, there has been a much greater recognition that nutrition might be important. When we publish some of our other findings on diet and cancer, for example, that alcohol increases breast cancer risk, there was massive disbelief in the medical community, even among most of my colleagues. But that's been seen in uh, almost four dozen studies now, uh, and so it's uh, very accepted. Uh, So a lot of this is just going into new territory that was really unexplored until very recently. I read an article this year um, that was criticizing the method, mm-hmm. and uh, t- I think part of the criticism was that asking people to self-report about their diet and then teasing out a specific part of diet and the influence is very difficult. What's your response to that? Well, we all know that diet can't be measured perfectly because every individual probably eats a little bit differently every day. But our way of assessing diet is ask a person about their long-term intake over the past year. So we smooth out the day-to-day fluctuations that what you eat one day and not the next is really not critical to us. It's a long-term dietary pattern of an individual that's going to be important for most things. And we've done many validation studies where we compared our diet assessments to uh, biochemical measures, say, of trans fat in the fat tissue of a person or the level of beta carotene in the blood. And we found pretty good correlations. They're not perfect, but they're pretty good. And it means that we are able to uh, pick up uh, meaningful differences in people uh, among people that we can tell someone who's eating a large amount of trans fat from a person eating low amount of trans fat. We may not know exactly how many grams a day, but we can put them into groups pretty well. And trans fat, the same way that trans fat is shown to be bad for other health outcomes in your book, shows to be it's pretty bad for fertility as well, right? Uh, we found in our analysis that trans fat was related to infertility. It was one of the stronger relationships. And that was actually uh, one of the top original hypotheses because we've seen that trans fat is related not just to heart disease, but also other conditions related to insulin resistance. For example, it's a risk factor for type 2 diabetes and also gall- uh, gallbladder disease. And so it, it was not at all surprising that our hypothesis was confirmed in trans fat is a uh, as an increased, uh, it increases the risk of infertility. It was interesting to me to read this book after doing all my research on acne and the idea that they're both, horm- you know, in large part hormonal changes and responses and the idea that, that food affects the hormones in our body. I, I just thought that, I thought it was fascinating. I mean, just the, the relationship between the two and the relationship between things that people don't necessarily think about and 
um, and the outcomes. The whole area of how our diet and nutrition affects our hormonal levels is quite a new area. Uh, a few people have studied this over the years, but there's certainly a lot to be learned. It is pretty clear, though, that what we eat in many ways can influence uh, different hormones in the body, and that probably does translate into our risk of various diseases and, in this case, infertility. You're right. I think about one in eight couples is struggling with some sort of infertility. Am I correct in that? That's about right, yes. Um, do you think that this type of um, recommendations all gathered in one place about lifestyle, cutting down on processed foods and sugars and, you know, eating, you know, whole grains, lower, you know, smaller amounts of red meat, omega-3s, um, getting plant protein, um, exercise, weight loss. Do you think that that can replace some of these expensive fertility treatments? What do you think the relationship is? I'm quite sure that for some people, a good diet and nutrition can replace infertility treatments. Uh, probably not for everybody, but these are so inexpensive and good for our health in general that I think it makes sense for everybody to give a serious try about uh, looking at their diet and activity to become pregnant uh, before jumping into very expensive and uh, and uh, treatments with some side effects as well. Pregnancy is, is uh, in some ways a, a challenge. It uh, represents some nutritional hurdles. And if you clear those hurdles uh, by a uh, better diet and better physical activity, you're going to be healthier for the rest of your life as well. It's not simply about becoming pregnant. How long have you been doing this type of nutrition research? I've been doing some nutrition research uh, really since I was in medical school. When I was in medical school, uh, I spent a summer on an Indian reservation in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I went to University of Michigan. And there we did a survey of nutrition and found that half of the population, adult population, was diabetic. And that really fascinated, fascinated me. And uh, I wondered why. And uh, we also used some dietary assessment methods and found that actually we could learn a lot about what people were eating with some fairly simple ways of measuring diet. And so in some ways, I've spent the rest of my career uh, trying to unravel some of those questions. How has your diet changed as you've been doing all this research? Oh, my diet has changed a lot. I grew up in Michigan, and that means uh, roast beef, mashed potatoes, and gravy is, uh, is the great way of eating. And uh, so I had not really experienced uh, many whole grains, if, if any. Um, and I have really changed in most ways that I don't eat much red meat anymore. I eat a wide variety of whole grains and vegetables I had not tried before. So my diet is a lot more interesting and a lot more healthy now. Um, you mentioned a few times in the discussion insulin, and I understand that high glycemic diets, um, processed food, sugar, etc., leads to insulin spikes. Can you just give me a quick rundown of how that, of how those insulin spikes influence hormones? Eating a lot of sugar and refined starches does increase our blood sugar. It really creates some big spikes and large demand for insulin. Uh, we're not totally sure how that does uh, increase our risk of infertility, but We've known for a long time that the more extreme form of insulin resistance that goes along with polycystic, polycystic ovarian syndrome is related very strongly to infertility. And even there, we're not sure exactly how that's working. So something affecting the basic uh, function and metabolism of cells is uh, saying uh, don't become pregnant until you've got your insulin resistance under control. If um, someone who's trying to get pregnant follows the recommendations, um, 
how big an effect can something like this have? We found that the effect of healthy diet is likely to be uh, very strong. Uh, if someone is not following any of these healthy behaviors and then adopts them all, it lo- or at least five of them, it looks like they could drop their risk uh, uh, by about uh, 80 or 90 percent. Uh, in other words, very strongly favor uh, getting uh, pregnant uh, compared to a, a bunch of bad dietary behaviors. If we look at the overall population, it looks like that we could uh, eliminate about 70 or 60 percent of the total cases of infertility that are occurring in, in the U.S. population by following these good diet and activity guidelines. Does this hold true even for women who are delaying pregnancy? That we looked at how this influences pregnancy uh, by a woman's age, and that's really important because a lot of women are delaying pregnancy. And we found that this dietary pattern is related to infertility about the same whether a woman's in their 20s or in their 30s. But don't worry, if you're 65 and follow this diet, you're not going to get pregnant. <laughs> One thing I also thought was interesting that I think might surprise people is that you um, you both say that there is little evidence of the Im- negative or positive impact of coffee or tea. And certainly people, many people are told to abstain from coffee and tea when they're trying to get pregnant or when they're pregnant. The issue of coffee and tea has been uh, inconsistent in the literature. We did not find any adverse effects uh, within the range of coffee and tea that we studied here. And some women drank quite a bit of coffee. Um, what we found actually in other studies is evidence that coffee is decreasing insulin resistance. So it could be that there's some negatives and some positives with coffee consumption that are balancing each other out. But uh, still, we do suggest uh, being modest in your coffee and tea consumption. If you're drinking a whole lot and having trouble becoming pregnant, it, it's, you know, it just makes common sense to really cut down on that. Check out Walter Willett's Wikipedia entry for links to some additional interviews, including an entire episode of the PBS documentary series Frontline about nutrition and health featuring comments from Willett. That's W-I-L-L-E-T-T. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a new opera at the Metropolitan here in New York City is about the quest to make a nuclear bomb, and it's called Dr. Atomic. Story two, 9,000-year-old skeletons are now the oldest cases of tuberculosis confirmed by DNA analysis. Story three, there's yet to be conclusive evidence for cell phones causing cancer, but cell phones apparently can cause pain in some people. And story four, Paul Krugman won the Nobel Economics Prize this week. He published an article in Scientific American in 1994. He thus becomes the 39th Nobel laureate to have published in our magazine. Time's up. Story one is true. The Met Opera Dr. Atomic debuted on October 13th. For more info about this John Adams, Peter Sellers opera, check out Peter Brown's article on our website called How We All Learned to Make the Bomb. Story two is true. Two skeletons found in Israel have been shown to be the remains of TB sufferers. TB has thus been infecting people for at least 3,000 years longer than previously known. That's according to a report published in the online journal Public Library of Science 1. And story three is true. Some people who describe themselves as electrosensitive do experience pain from cell phones, despite the fact that a study found that they feel pain even if the cell phone in question is fake. 
Nevertheless, brain scans show that the pain is real. For more, check out the October 13th edition of the 62nd Psych Siam podcast. All of which means that story four about Paul Krugman being the 39th Nobel Prize winner to write for Scientific American is totally bogus because Scientific American has in fact now published 139 different Nobel laureates who have contributed a running total of 228 articles. Krugman's April 1994 article was called Trade, Jobs, and Wages. You can find that article and our special Nobel Prize report at the website Siam.com. Well, that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Visit Siam.com for all the latest science news, blogs, and videos. Check out the other Siam podcasts, the daily 60-second science and the weekly 60-second psych and 60-second earth. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.